You're listening to Changemaker. Ideas on social impact. Lessons on life and business. Stories from people making a difference. I'm Jackie Biederman. We don't really think about it, but we sell something every day. We convince our friends to try a new restaurant or sell our significant other on watching that romantic comedy or our kids on why it's important to brush your teeth. With people that we're closest to, selling something is pretty easy because we know what they care about and what they'll respond to. And that's what makes a great sales pitch in business too, knowing your audience and tailoring your message. Let's look at how a successful business does this, like Starbucks. So if you go on their website, there's a huge photo showing the latest Frappuccino flavor, how you can join the Rewards Club, and links to the menu. This message is for customers and fans. But maybe you don't really care about coffee. You're interested in investing in Starbucks. You want to make money. So on their investor relations page, you'll find access to stock info, shareholder resources, and financial data. The feel of this page is much more technical, and it matches the audience. And then for people that want to work for Starbucks, there's a page for that, with pictures of happy employees making coffee, a list of awards and recognition, and a job search tool. In order to sell successfully, we need to customize our communications based on what people care about. On the show today, tailoring your message. We'll hear stories and lessons about connecting with audiences, including customers, donors, and investors. After a PhD candidate graduates, their research is archived and often they move on. But when Gavin Armstrong was a grad student, he came across a study that had to continue. And when I learned about the research, um, I immediately saw the opportunity to have a major global impact and didn't want to see this be you know, a typical thesis that would just sit on the shelf. I wanted to actually turn it into something. Um, and that's when I got involved and commercialized the, the company, innovated the product that is now called the Lucky Iron Fish. Gavin is the founder and CEO of Lucky Iron Fish, a company fighting iron deficiency with small, fish-shaped pieces of iron. The research project that he came across was conducted by Christopher Charles, now Dr. Charles. Dr. Charles traveled to Cambodia to study the prevalence of anemia there, a condition where the blood doesn't have enough healthy red blood cells. Red blood cells are what carry oxygen throughout our bodies. And if you think about it, less oxygen means that the body slows down. This can be caused by a lack of iron in a diet. And in places like Cambodia, people's diets are mostly rice and fish, without a lot of iron-rich red meat. So what does it mean to be iron deficient? When Dr. Charles was in Cambodia, he saw kids that had slowed mental development and were small for their age. He found women that were unable to work because they had severe headaches and fatigue. Iron deficiency anemia can lead to a higher risk of infection, hemorrhaging, premature childbirth, and sometimes death. According to the World Health Organization, iron deficiency is the most common nutritional disorder in the world. But the good news is that it's preventable. The standard solution is to take iron pills, but since they're expensive, not always available, and can cause side effects like headaches and an upset stomach, people don't take them. So Dr. Charles searched for alternatives. 
He found studies that demonstrated cast iron cooking pots can increase the amount of iron intake in a diet. But not everyone has these or can afford them. So he created something cheap and easy to use. A small block of iron that can be boiled in a pot of soup or water. It didn't change the taste of the food or water. It was affordable and it proved to be effective. But people hated it. Because it felt like he was effectively asking people to put a piece of trash into their cooking pot. Uh, So he did some work and and tried different shapes. So I want to stop a second. This was an amazing product. It was practical and it worked. But nobody wanted to use it. Well, actually, they were using the blocks as doorstops. But something that seemed so small like the shape mattered. So observing rural Cambodian culture and better understanding his audience, Dr. Charles recognized that many things revolve around fish, food, currency, folklore, In Cambodia, a fish is a symbol of luck. And so he shaped the block like a fish, and then people did want to start using it because they thought it would make them lucky. And then when I got involved, I innovated um, his fish, which was the happy fish, and created some really unique design features that would be able to be patented, but also would allow the fish to be reusable for five years and release a consistent and safe amount of iron. And one of the coolest features on it, in my view, is the fish is reusable for five years. So we've actually made the smile in a way that it'll fade away after the five-year usage. So when your fish isn't happy anymore, that's when you know you have to get a new one. So Gavin took on this project by becoming a PhD candidate himself. His thesis was commercializing the lucky iron fish through social enterprise. And so I got I got to do sort of the research and the the startup of this business at the same time, which was at times very stressful, but also uh, very rewarding. Gavin moved to Cambodia in 2012 and survived on research grants for the first couple of years. He was refining the product and conducting more studies until he was ready to sell. Now, the value proposition here was good. Fifty percent of women and children in Cambodia suffer from anemia. So there's a need. The iron fish was cheaper and easier to use than iron pills, and the fish shape was appealing. There were studies to back it up too, that this fish can provide you with your daily required iron intake. So Gavin invested money into a sales strategy and assembled a sales team. They started going from village to village, door to door. So uh, we did like a, a traveling road show where we'd go into markets and we'd do taste tests to show that it didn't change the taste or color of the food or water and then would handle the information and expect people to buy it. And then we'd move on to the next town. They sold an average of only one fish per month. This sales approach wasn't working. People really want to continue to ask questions. They want to see their neighbors using it. It takes more than just a six eight hour, to eight hour workday to convince a community to buy the fish. So it was a bit over um, zealous on my part. So then we pivoted to work with NGOs and nonprofits who are already in the communities. We sell to them, we provide the fish to them, and then they can hand them out. They can have the conversations and convince the the families to use them. And then they can also follow up with the families, answer any questions, and do an impact assessment. People wanted to hear from someone that they trusted, not a traveling salesman. This model of distributing through NGOs helped Lucky Iron Fish to grow from a thesis into a sustainable social enterprise and a company that has built social impact into almost every step of the supply chain. Our production is done using recycled iron in a very green and and eco-friendly foundry with very high safety records. Our packaging is made from recycled material with uh, environmentally friendly vegetable dye ink. 
and then we do have this one for one model so every fish that's sold we commit to donate a fish for free to a community in need around the world and this one for one model is reaching new audiences online people who can increase their iron intake while helping someone in need all with a cute little fish Lucky Iron Fish has helped over 500,000 people with iron deficiency. And they have a goal to distribute 1 million fish to 1 million families by the year 2020. Tailoring a message means knowing your audience, understanding that you and someone else might look at a block of iron differently. And even with a great message, it has to come from the right channel, someone that people trust which might not always be you. So now let's move on and meet another social entrepreneur, Alexi Seller, CEO and co-founder of Pollinate Energy. Alexi's at her apartment in Bangalore, India during this interview, and it's a big and busy city, so you'll hear a little bit of background noise. It's actually very quiet for India. <laughs> Is it? Um, okay. I am by a window, which by default means you're going to hear some cars. But yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> this is definitely the quietest space. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bangalore is sometimes called India's Silicon Valley because it's a major tech hub. You'll find high-rises and shopping centers, but this city is also home to hundreds of slums. And it's here where Alexi first discovered tens of thousands of families living in tents. On average, five people share a space not much bigger than your dining room table, covered by big plastic tarps. It's where they cook, sleep, and live. Most people come from rural communities. And they've come into the city and then found, like, an empty patch of land that a landowner has and, and he's not used, and then they've just settled there. Um, so they're sort of like tent squat little cities, and we've come across about 500 of those across Bangalore alone. So there, there are many of them, and they're very diverse and, and scattered around. And what happens then is like because they're not, there's no, there's no way that they own that land or they have any kind of claim of, of permanency or right to stay there. They're stuck in that cycle of just having a tent set up on a patch of dirt um, and there's no services coming into them so that the local councils are not going to set up with, like water distribution or sewage or electricity to those communities um, because that the way that they're living is not seen as a permanent solution. But then on the other hand, nothing else is done to kind of alleviate the problems they're facing. So they're just, they're in limbo. Because these aren't permanent structures, the government and NGOs assumed that people were here today and gone tomorrow. But then when we walked in and started talking to them and asked questions, we found out they'd been there for like 7, 10, 12 years, which was not what any of us had anticipated and, and equally what most people in Bangalore denied, that people had been there for that long or that they could possibly live in a tent for that long. But people are living here, and they've lived this way for years without access to basic needs like electricity and clean water, without access to financing, without access to life-changing products. Alexi and her team thought they could help, so they founded Pollinate Energy. 
Pollinate Energy employs entrepreneurs from the community to sell solar lights, water purifiers, solar fans, and phone chargers. And they offer microloans so people can afford them, something that other lenders consider too risky. Since they started in 2012, they've sold over 22,000 products, impacting the lives of over 100,000 people. And less than 1% of people have defaulted on the microloans. So in order to get this idea going and to start up in new cities, Alexi asked for donations. And that's where she's learned a lot about tailoring a message. My role for Pollinate the first three years was to raise as much money as we could in Australia. Um, but I had not come from a fundraising background. I was straight out of engineering. Um, so it took me a while to understand how messages need to be communicated in order to get um, buy-in from donors. But equally, um, it, it, is, it is challenging in Australia to communicate this kind of the work that we are doing in a way that does not oversimplify um, and is, is genuine to the problem that we're solving. And I think, I mean, for example, the, one of the biggest challenges we face is the, is the concept of a slum. So I've had many Australians come to me and be like, I've heard that people in slums have satellite TV. Like, why are we donating to help give them something when they've already got television? And that is true. That's true of a lot of families that have been there and, and surveyed them, and many of them have satellite television and a washing machines sometimes. Like, they had much more access to product and services than the people that we're dealing with um, in our tent slums. So that is a big challenge because it requires a lot of it requires a certain level of knowledge about a situation and then the ability to kind of unpack what people already think and redirect them towards a new problem that maybe they haven't heard of. Everyone has their own worldview, influenced by where they live and who and what they know. It's hard to imagine people in another part of the world, living in tents and in darkness. So Alexi meets people where they are, with a message that they can relate to. And it's not until you like stop and think through from the moment you get up and you you know you pick up your phone and it's been charged all night because you have an electricity connection and you turn on the light even if you're up before the sun's up and you can see and you can move around the house easily you can like chop food to make breakfast um, or you can heat water to make a cup of tea like everything that you do in your daily life at home is powered by an electricity connection, and that is what these people don't have. After connecting her audience with something familiar, she introduces a different reality. So, by contrast, someone living in a, a tent slum in Bangalore, they wake up well before sunrise because they have so many tasks they have to do to get ready for the day. Um, so the mother will be up well before dawn, and, and they have to prepare all their food, in the darkness. If they can't do it in the darkness, they'll go sit outside on the street under a street light. So they're kind of publicly using whatever they have available to get themselves ready for the day. And then once they've done that, as soon as it is light, they're leaving their homes to go and find work for the day. And that often means like lining up or going to a common area where they can find someone who needs construction labor and, and then head off for the day to do that work. Then they're working all day and they want, obviously want to be out as much as, as long as they can to earn the most money that they can, which means returning home often once the sun has already set. Um, and then once the sun has set, they need to then continue to make food and, and clean and look after their children and do everything else that needs to be done again in darkness. And it, it is that that is so limiting because 
with the kerosene flame that most of these people have, it's nothing more than the flame of, of like a tall candle. And I'm sure you've been in the blackout before and like lit a candle, which is kind of fun and romantic when it happens to you once a year. Mm-hmm. But if that was the light you had every night to cook and clean and read by and, and teach your children under, you would quickly realize just how limiting that was for you um, in terms of your productivity, but then also like your social social engagement with your family is just incredibly limited. And finally in her message, Alexi offers a solution. So having a light means that these families can make better use of their of time in the dark. Um, it means women stay at work longer and earn more money for their family, which improves their economic standing in the home because they can get home after dark and still have light to cook and clean by. It means the kids who um, you know are already like coming from a massive amount of disadvantage who can actually have a light to study under so they can keep up at school. But we've seen some other really interesting impacts that I think none of us expected, but our customers always talk about, like <laughs> a lack of snakes and rodents in the home, which sounds kind of hideous. Oh my gosh. But by having a light on inside their home, they are less likely to have snakes and rats enter. Um, and they actually have, I mean, legitimately have problems of like rats trying to nibble on their children's <gasps> fingers oh, overnight no. while they're sleeping. Um, And the light actually keeps those creatures out of their home, which is an awesome impact just to make that they can kind of sleep safely without worrying about their kids. So it's stories like these that create an emotional connection and can move people to take action, ultimately in this case, to make a donation. But this message doesn't appeal to every audience. Some well-seasoned philanthropists and institutions are already bought into the idea of fighting energy poverty. So it's not enough to, to win a major institutional donor just by saying, like, this family will now have access to solar lighting. Like, they, I think they understand the impact, but they want to hear what else is innovative about you. So for that kind of audience, we would, we would position ourselves as um, an innovative and highly efficient, like, tech-based solution, distribution solution for these slums. Um, and highlighting like the size of the market in India and how many slum families there are and the, the incoming urban migration, which is set to happen over the next decade and saying like, we're in the best position to quickly reach all of these people. We've already sold almost 20,000 products um, and all of, and we have like great data and knowledge of these slums in a way that like even the Indian government doesn't know. Um, and that message is much more compelling to someone who's, you know, who's looking to invest 50, 100,000, whatever it might be. Um, because they know then that we understand the problem really well and we have a great track record and we have a very scalable solution. But if we were to take that kind of language back to a public donor campaign in Australia, <clears throat> it would just, like, it just wouldn't really be relevant. Um, and for them, it's like, you know, emotionally, they've got to be connected to a campaign and understand, like, person to person, like, what is the impact that is happening. And for both, for both messages and both stories, like neither of them are wrong, they're not conflicting. Um, it's just about highlighting the different part of your model that is more appealing to the person you're talking to and that they kind of want to hear about. I love what Alexi said about neither message being wrong because the goal is the same, to bring life-changing products to people who need them most. So we've heard from people who are selling to their audiences. Now we're going to flip everything and hear from the audience. 
I interviewed two guys that get thousands of pitches a year. This is Justin DeRosier with Investor Circle. I'm the director of investments and also a principal on the Patient Capital Collaborative series of funds uh, where we invest in early stage uh, social ventures. And Andrew? Yeah, so I'm Andrew Cousins, uh, investment manager at Investor Circle and also an analyst at the fund that Justin just mentioned. Investor Circle is the world's largest early stage impact investing network. What that means is that they connect investors with companies that do good while making a profit. And since they hear tons of pitches, Justin and Andrew shared their advice on what makes a great pitch. So whatever it is you're selling, in your business or personally, whatever you're trying to move people to do, you're going to want to hear these tips. First, the introduction. This is selecting the way that your message will be received. If you don't personally know your audience, you have two options. Reaching out to someone cold, or what's called a warm introduction, an introduction by a mutual connection. You know the saying, it's all who you know? Well, that definitely helps. You know, we look at, you know, a, a thousand plus deals a year. So I see a lot of pitch decks inbound. And if the company is is reaching out to me and it's a, it's a cold uh, cold call, they need to be really compelling for me to look at that pitch deck and then want to engage with the company. Right. Now, the company is referred from a partner or from another investor that we've invested with, co-invested with in the past, then that's more compelling. So I think that's getting a path into the investors is, is really important. But what if you don't have these kinds of connections? Justin recommends starting with the network that you do have. So in this case, while you may not know any investors directly, you might know entrepreneurs that do. Working through your network of, of entrepreneurs and peers, I think, is a, is a often overlooked pathway, but one that can work really well to, to, get, to get access to and get in front of investors. So a warm introduction is all about the connections that can help you get in front of your audience. Now, if you just don't have these connections, you'll have to introduce yourself cold. But you can still include something relevant in this introduction that your audience cares about. For example, let's say that you own a clean water startup. Maybe you make water filtration systems. And after some research, you learn that Justin and Andrew currently manage investments in this area. So you can use this information that you operate in a similar marketplace to introduce yourself. And it's this idea of creating a connection that can make a cold email feel just a little warmer. So we talked about introductions. The second tip, get to the point. Think about it like headlines in the news. These short and simple titles help us to decide quickly if we want to read the whole article. People are busy, so make your pitch clear and concise. At Investor Circle, entrepreneurs are asked to condense their business model, financial projections, their market analysis, everything about their company into 10 slides. So you can get everything that you need into, um, into 10 slides. Uh, and if you do that and it's nice and concise and it um, explains the business in a, in a clear way, um, an investor can flip that deck really quickly and get to a yes, I want to learn more or no, this is not interesting in a couple minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really key. Yeah. And I would say even going one step previous to that, you know, Justin mentioned being clear and concise. I think being able to really clearly state what it is that you do and what market you're operating in, in a single sentence, you know, maybe two sentences at the head of an email, 
goes a long way. We do get a lot of emails that come in and, you know, there are thousands of words, dozens of paragraphs. Again, it's really tough if you're reaching out cold to get someone to, you know, take time and really sift through all that information and digest that information. So I think being clear and concise in a way that, you know, captures attention to even get us, you know, to even get someone to really open up a pitch deck and start reading through a deck um, is really important. And I know all the companies we work with, or most of the companies we work with, we actually have them go through an elevator pitch training session so that they feel confident they can do a 10-second, 30-second, and minute-long pitch. Being able to do it in written format you know, is great just to be able to really quickly put out there what it is that you're doing. While there's so much that we're excited to talk about, our audience's time is limited. So make every word count and make it easy for them to take the next step. A succinct sentence may entice someone to open up a pitch deck, which might lead to an in-person invitation. And these in-person pitches are usually only a few minutes long. But it's the first few seconds that are the most critical. Our companies typically have seven minutes to present to investors. And within a minute into the pitch, I know whether or not I'm interested or not. You know, seven minutes is not a lot of time to go through your business um, and describe everything fully. But, you know, I always joke that, well, you only really need a minute. Um, So seven minutes is is a long time because (laughs) within a minute – um, you can know whether or not you're interested in, in learning more. And it's about um, the composure of the the entrepreneur, how they present themselves. You know, are they doing a, a great job of concisely presenting their um, their business? Um, and and is this an area that I personally or, or my fund will actually invest in? So tip number three, wait until you're ready. Actually, I, I find it really surprising how many people are, you know, willing and able and excited to pitch to an audience without being totally sure what it is that they're actually asking for. So I've been guilty of this. A few years ago, I volunteered to organize a silent auction fundraiser for my kids' preschool. I knew that I couldn't do it alone, so I asked for volunteers early on, and a few people said yes. So great. I told them that I'd get back to them when I had specific details about the project for them. So a couple months later, I sent out an email to this group and I had a few things that I needed help with. But at this time, a couple months later, they were already too busy with other things and couldn't help. So similarly, an entrepreneur might know that they need to raise money and they might be really eager to get in front of investors. But if they're not ready for an investment, this poses a risk. You'll likely only have one shot and one opportunity to pitch to that group and get in front of that audience. So, you know, regardless of how bad you need to raise capital, I I usually think it's best until you have that plan worked out and you have all the details to then wait and get in front of that group as opposed to, you know, taking the opportunity to get in front of an audience and not have any of that stuff worked out yet. And I I don't want to use the word like squander the opportunity, but to not take full advantage of it. So I think it's just important to really plan and prepare ahead of time. And if you're not ready, just to be honest with yourself and know that you need to wait a little bit. Yeah, because the investors might get really excited about what you're doing. They might love the pitch, but if you don't actually have something for them to invest in, the offering's not there yet, it hasn't come together, the terms have been created. Um, if it's not something for them to invest in, you have to realize that these investors, it's not that they don't you know, love the mission and want to invest in the company, it's that they're going to forget. Um, they're, you, know, you come back to them six months later, you know, they have forgotten what you actually do and 
they've seen dozens of dozens of companies since then um, and maybe made investments uh, in some of those companies along the way. So um, I think yeah, the, the timing is really important. Approach investors when you actually can have them invest in your company. Last tip, be authentic. It's okay, and I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs get really uncomfortable with this. It's okay to not have an answer to some things. You can tell pretty clearly when you've seen you know, hundreds of pitches and sat through hundreds of Q&A sessions. When a question gets asked, you can tell when an entrepreneur doesn't actually know the answer and they fumble and try and just come up with something so as not, not to appear like they are not knowledgeable on the subject. You know, they're human and everyone gets that. We want to see that you know, they know their business inside and out better than anyone else, but not everyone knows everything and we're all human and we recognize that. So you know, rather than make something up or you know, the absolute worst case scenario is, is lie and say something that's untrue, you know, it's all right to say, you know, let me check and come back to you on that because I don't have an exact answer or, you know, for whatever reason it may be, you can't answer that today, but you know, that you have other information you can provide. Um, but always better than being misleading or, or, or I guess fumbling and trying to create something that's not there. By being authentic and imperfect, we might not have all the answers, but we're building trust. So Justin and Andrew spend a lot of their time coaching entrepreneurs with pitching. There's lots of steps involved, but the big takeaway is this. A successful pitch isn't about us at all. It's about our audience, what they care about and what they respond to. An iron fish, an emotional story connecting us with someone in another part of the world. A one minute introduction that invites people to join in on something great. It starts with knowing your audience, because then you can tailor your message. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to learn more about Gavin, Alexi, Justin, or Andrew, go to changemakerpodcast.com. Music is by Josh Woodward, Jazar, Lee Rosevere, and Josh Harlan. I'm Jackie Biederman, and you've been listening to Changemaker. Hey, Changemakers, that was the last episode of season one. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day, and I hope that these stories inspired you and encouraged you as you make the change that you want to see. If you like the series and you want to hear more, that is awesome. Thank you. And could you do me a favor? Please leave an amazing review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps these stories to spread. Oh, and if you want to connect with me and keep up on what the latest is, Sign up for my newsletter at changemakerpodcast.com. Thank you so much for your support.